I think there's something unsettling about Christ's ascension. The notion of a person floating up into the clouds strikes us as either pure fantasy or utter delusion. Perhaps, maybe, we can wrap our heads around the resurrection by giving it a thoroughly spiritual interpretation. We know that dead men don't rise from the dead, so, we argue, Jesus was resurrected in spirit, which is to say that his ideas and his legacy live on through his believers and followers. Moreover, as those who live in the shadow of the scientific revolution, the ascension presents a challenge, because we all know what's up there, the vast expanse of the universe. By extension, we know what is not up there, heaven, the angels, God sitting on the throne. Therefore, we tell ourselves, any notion of a physical resurrection or a physical ascension must be religious fantasy, born of a dangerous sort of biblical literalism and fundamentalism. Heaven is therefore the creation of devious and conniving clergy, trying to enforce some puritanical morality through a system of divine reward and punishment. And of course, this conclusion to our modern ears sounds all very rational. This line of reasoning, I suspect, is part of the reason why the Ascension is not widely celebrated in the modern church. The inconvenience, of course, of church on a weekday evening aside, the celebration of what is supposed to be, we tell ourselves, a rather minor event, if it happened at all, seems to be uninteresting at best and a waste of time at most. After all, what relevance does the Ascension hold to my life today? At least Easter has chocolate and bunnies to keep the kid entertained, and by extension, we adults who get to have the leftovers. However, these assumptions about the resurrection and about the ascension tell us more about the state of our culture and our church than they do about the ascension itself. But in this sermon, I'm not going to proceed by a literalist defense of the scripture nor through the lens of scientific skepticism. Both, I think, are problematic. What I want to do is offer you a theological reflection on the ascension and its importance to the life of the church specifically as the ascension relates to the work of prayer. The ascension of Jesus Christ is the hinge between Easter and Pentecost. Jesus' ascension is the terminus of his earthly ministry which began with his incarnation. The ascension completes Jesus' atoning work. You see, without the ascension, Jesus' death is simply self-sacrifice, a good model to follow. However, with the ascension, Jesus' death is seen rightly as his high priestly sacrifice that atones for sin. Moreover, in his physical ascension into the presence of his heavenly Father, we have the assurance of not only the, re the reality of Jesus' own bodily resurrection, but also the hope of our own bodily resurrection. Simply put, the redemption of our souls and our bodies is a full and present reality because of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. The real mystery of Easter, and by extension the ascension, is not that God glor is glorified in it, but that humanity is exalted, raised to the right hand of God, and permitted to triumph over sin, death, and the devil. Through Christ's ascension, Humanity is elevated to the throne of God. 
Consider what St. Paul says in his Apostle to the Ephesians. God has, quote, raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So St. Paul is not describing only a future state. He is describing our current state. The saints already here and now at this moment share in the glory of Jesus' ascension. Therefore, the ascension is a profoundly humanistic doctrine because it is Christocentric. As the one who is both fully God and fully human, Jesus brings our humanity into the presence of God the Father. And this is why Christ alone is the mediator between God and humanity. Without the ascension, we are left on earth to our own devices and desires with little assurance that God hears our prayers or even cares for our plight. We don't have access to the throne room without the ascension. Furthermore, as Jesus himself says in our gospel reading, the ascension paves the way for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus makes this clear in his farewell discourse to his disciples. I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Simply put, no ascension, no descent of the Holy Spirit, and therefore no church. Christ did not abandon us, nor did he abdicate physical reality in favor of a higher spiritual plane. Rather, as St. Augustine put it, Jesus did not leave heaven when he came down to us, nor did he withdraw from us when he went up again. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ is made physically present among us, primarily through the Eucharist, but also as he constitutes his body, the Church, to continue his earthly ministry until he descends again at his second advent. It is at this point, I think, that the importance of Jesus' ascension becomes more clear. Because Jesus physically ascended with his humanity intact, the ascension must be to a particular place. Bodies can't exist without space and time. In the resurrection, Jesus is already transfigured and transformed. In the ascension, he is translated or relocated. That is, he is taken up and placed by God where he properly belongs, just as God once took Adam and put him into Eden. Jesus is placed at the right hand of his Father in his heavenly kingdom, the locale of which is outside created time and space, and even beyond the grasp of quantum physics. Nevertheless, this heavenly kingdom is not a distant reality. It is tangible precisely because Christ himself is the embodiment of this kingdom, and his church is meant to be a foretaste of this kingdom. When we pray as our Savior taught us, asking for his kingdom to come, we are anticipating that great day described in Revelation 21 and 22, when Christ joins heaven and earth into one seamless reality. On this day, we will celebrate for eternity the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, the church. Even Jesus doesn't stay in heaven forever. forever. Likewise, heaven is not our home, our final destiny. Rather, heaven is where things happen first, where our nature is first enthroned in Christ Jesus. However, ascension is not the end point of the human story. We ascend, like Christ, in order to descend, 
And the end comes when heaven finally breaks through the firmament, firmament to couple with earth, when heaven comes to earth to heavenize it. Many of the great mystical authors of the church using the language, use the language of ascent to describe the life of discipleship, of following Jesus. And one of the, well one of the most well-known uh, books looking at this and using this imagery of ascent is The Ladder of Divine Ascent, written by St. John Climacus in the early 7th century. By using the language of ascent or ascension, Climacus and others like him are reminding us that it is precisely because our lives are hid with the ascended Christ that we are to seek the things that are above, as St. Paul puts it, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This reminder helps us to make this reminder helps make the sufferings of this present life more bearable because we have the assurance that Christ bears them with us and for us and that he will descend to earth again to put an end to suffering, sin, and death once and for all. This is why also the movements of ascent and descent are integral to our own ritual practices as a church. In the Anglican church we have what some have called liturgical aerobics. We stand, we sit, we kneel, we move up, we move down. And at various points in the liturgy, we are doing all these things. We are to seek the things that are above, and our physical posture indicates our spiritual posture. Indeed, the opening line of our Eucharistic prayer is both an injunction and a compliance to lift up, to ascend our hearts to God. Additionally, think of the language we use to describe worship services that are particularly poignant or meaningful. We say they were uplifting or gave us a spiritual boost. You see, we are ascending into the heavenly presence of God our Father, but we can only ascend as such because Christ himself ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, bringing our humanity with him. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are asking the Father to send Christ to establish his rule, his justice and his peace in our own hearts and in our world. We cast our cares onto him and entrust ourselves to his loving embrace. This is precisely why prayer is described as a battle. Prayer is a battle we wage against all voices that tell us that prayer is a waste of time because it's a form of spiritual navel-gazing in the face of an absent God or a God who just doesn't care, a God who's left the building. Prayer is a battle to let go of our frustrations, our anger, our disappointments, our desire for revenge, our doubts, and to turn them all over to God, to lift up our hearts. Prayer is a battle that as we struggle against our default attempts to try to fix the state of the world through our own efforts and initiatives, through the power of our earthly kingdoms. Prayer is a battle, but it is a battle that has already been won because of Jesus. Christ is our heavenly high priest. He intercedes on our behalf. He takes the prayers and praises as we, that we ascend unto him, and he perfects them and offers them to the Father on our behalf. To pray thy kingdom come is to proclaim the victory of Jesus, the, of the ascended Jesus in spite of what seems to be his defeat. Our proclamation of thy kingdom come is born of the assurance that Christ is risen and ascended, that he is the Lord of creation 
and that he will come again, he will descend to establish his heavenly kingdom on earth. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus promised his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added to their fellowship. The mission of the church begins with prayer. Indeed, the mission of the church is entirely and thoroughly prayer. We pray that others may come to know Christ. We pray that the church would faithfully witness to Jesus Christ. We pray that the kingdom would come. We pray that God would grow his church through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All of this is succinctly summarized in the one request, Thy kingdom come. Christ's kingdom cannot come if Christ did not physically ascend. However, because he did, we are given a foretaste of his heavenly kingdom every time we gather to hear God's word proclaimed and as we receive the body and blood of Christ. We see the first fruits of Christ's heavenly kingdom every time a sinner repents, when the hungry are fed, when the naked are clothed, when the widows and orphans receive care, when the poor receive their fair share, and when a person comes to put their hope and trust in Christ. The ascension matters because we matter. We matter and Christ lets it be known. So let us celebrate the feast with the assurance that Christ is our risen and ascended Lord. And may we do so in the anticipation of the final eternal feast when heaven and earth are united at one and Christ descends to establish his rule forever and ever. Thy kingdom come. Amen.